Our second session for today, we're, I'm calling it the threefold cord, um, which is an allusion to the wisdom literature of the Old Testament where they say a three-band three, three, um, cord is not easily broken. Um, and that threefold cord for us is made up of the Mass, the daily office, and private prayer. And so to explain how these three things fit together, uh, Martin Thornton uses a, um, an analogy or an image of a fence. So the first thing you do when you want to build a fence, so I'm told, is you put big posts at regular intervals. And he says that's the daily, or that's the mass. The mass is these big posts at regular intervals. And the intervals, he says, are every Sunday and the red letter feast days in the prayer book. Between those main large posts, there are smaller stakes at more frequent intervals. He says this is the daily office, morning and evening prayer. And then finally, there are pieces that go across to kind of bind everything together. Those are private prayer. And the nice thing about those, those cross pieces is that they can be variable sizes, number, strength, material, etc. probably depending on your HOA. It was a joke. It was an HOA joke. We hosted the NHOA meeting here a couple weeks ago that was very contentious. Um, they made me count the votes of the HOA meeting because they didn't trust the board of the HOA to count the votes. And I was being audited while I was doing it in my collar. It was very strange. Anyways, it has nothing to do with anything. Um, so, so first we have the Mass. The Mass is the most important thing uh, that, that we do as the church. Um, and we do it every Sunday. We do it every Red Letter Day. And we can even do it more frequently than that. But Thornton says, look, if you're going to do the rule, you should commit to the, to the Sundays and Red Letter Days, which is 75 days a year, basically, at least. Now, uh, so one thing that, that has been asked before is why do we call it the Mass? Why do we call it the Mass? Um, the Mass really is the principal service of Christian worship. It always has been since the very beginning of the church. Um, it revolves around Holy Eucharist and is also known as Communion or the Lord's Supper. The Holy Eucharist is the worship of Almighty God our Father through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ with all the members of his body, the church, in union with him. Since it is the central act of Christian worship, it's got to be celebrated with all of the dignity and honor and reverence and beauty that the church can muster. Now, the word mass itself comes from a Latin word, which is misa, misa, and that word means to send or dismissal. So in the early days of Christian worship, uh, what you would have is, you know, we have sort of two halves of the service. There's the liturgy of the word, the front half of the service. And then there's the liturgy of the sacrament, the second half of the service. Back in the day, um, non-Christians who were interested in becoming Christians, so those who hadn't been baptized yet, they had to go through a pretty uh, intense catechesis process that lasted usually at least a year before they would baptize you. You were not allowed to stay for the liturgy of the sacrament. And so you were sent out for instruction after, basically about after the sermon. So uh, the, the, the dismissal refers to that dismissal, the dismissal of the catechumens out of the service during the uh, during this celebration of the sacred mystery. And of course, we don't force uh, unbaptized to leave during communion anymore. We usually just give them a blessing when they come up, which is fine. Um, but we do require you to be baptized in order to receive communion. Um, also, the word misa figured prominently at the end of the communion of the faithful, right, the Mass is ended, depart in peace, was that word Misa. Over time, the term Misa, which denoted parts of the service, became the title for the whole service. Right? We, see a similar, uh, we see a similar feature with that when we talk about something like Maundy Thursday. Maundy Thursday comes from the word mandatum, which means command, and it comes from the gospel reading at that service, where Jesus says, a new command I give unto you, that ye also love one another. So it's Maundy Thursday because of that. Um, another example is when we call the sacrament of penance confession. You know, I need to go to confession. Um, confession is really only one part of the sacrament. There's like three different parts. But, you know, the penitent also receives absolution and an act of penance, but we call it confession. So mass is similar. You know, we named the whole service after one part of the service. And it's, it's not accidental um, that we do that. 
Because the point is, you know, we're receiving this great gift of God. It's, it's what we talked about in the first session. We receive God's love and then in order to bring it out into the world. So growing up in Baptist and evangelical context, one of the cool things that they did that I actually really appreciate even today is over the back, uh, the door to exit the church or sometimes in the parking lot as you were leaving the church, there was often some sort of sign that says you're now entering the mission field. Right, you're being sent out into the world, and so that you know the masses ended to part in peace is that idea of go into the world and go live out what you have received here, bring it to the world. Now, sometimes people will say, "Well, isn't the mass just a, a Roman Catholic term? As Anglicans, don't we just call it Holy Communion?" Well, that's debatable. Um, in the 1549 Book of Common Prayer, which was the very first Book of Common Prayer, the service was actually called the Supper of the Lord and the Holy Communion, commonly called the Mass. And it's also the title that's used for the service in the Anglican Missal, which has an importance for us in the Anglican province of America. Um, and while Anglicans and Roman Catholics always haven't, haven't always agreed on some of the finer points, the purpose of the service is the same in both traditions, namely that we offer the sacrifice of Christ for our benefit and that of all the church. We offer ourselves in joining with that sacrifice, which we see during the, um, during the prayer of humble access. Grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of thy dear Son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood, that our sinful bodies may be made clean by his body, and our souls washed through his most precious blood, and that we may evermore dwell in him and he in us. And so for this reason, we, can't, we can say that the Mass is not really something that we do. I mean, there is a sense in which we, as, as the church, do the service, but there's also a sense in which, as far as the actual grace that's communicated during the service, that's not something that we do, but rather that's an act of God on which the church is dependent for its existence. Without the Mass, there is no church. He says, the one sure, Martin Thornton says, the one sure method of advancing in Eucharistic worship is to take part in it and go on taking part in it. In other words, and we talked about this a Bible study yesterday, you know, sometimes the best invitation is not a, an exposition on all the finer points of the theology undergirding the Mass, but come and see, come and see, and keep coming and keep seeing. Not just once, but make it, make it the center of your life because it's important for us to get used to the rhythm of the Mass. You know? I mean, there is a distinct rhythm to it. And that can take some time for someone, especially if they've not really been trained in a liturgical setting before. That can be kind of foreign. And it can be cool because they're seeing it with fresh eyes, so they can be really excited about it. But there's also a lot they don't know. And so getting used to the rhythm of it first is really important. But it's also really important to know what we do and why we do it. Right? This is why we do instructed Eucharist every so often. It's why we're always talking about the liturgy. It's why, it's why the liturgy can really be a really good sermon tool. You know, Hey, it's like what we say at this part in the liturgy. Knowing the history and the theology of the Mass has a direct ascetical value for us. Like we said earlier, the goal of theology is to make us better at prayer. Similarly, you know, when, we, when we talk about liturgy, we're not talking about some obscure thing that doesn't matter. We're talking about something that has direct bearing on, on, on the Mass, which will form and shape us and our understanding of it. Like I said, the, the Mass has two major parts. There's the liturgy of the Word, and there's the, um, that includes the proclamation of the Gospel through prayers, through the reading of Scripture, and through the preaching of a sermon. The second part of the service is the liturgy of the sacrament, where we have the consecration, the oblation, and the worship of the faithful. Again, you have two poles that are present here in the Mass, uh, represented by each part of the service. There is a sucker element to it, S-U-C-C-O-R, um, in which we're presented with the good news of redemption in Christ. You know That really is the goal of all of our, our readings, and it should be at the heart of our sermons. And... So we have that aspect of it, right? But, but there's also, in, in, the, in the second part of the service, an emphasis on, on demand. Pick up your cross and follow him. And here we offer ourselves, our souls, and our bodies to be a living sacrifice. That's a pretty tough call, you know? And, and this, we've been doing a study on Fridays on Luke and Acts, and this is exactly how Jesus acts, right? When he's talking to the large crowds, the uninitiated, He's very humanistic to them. Come unto me, all ye that travail and are heavy laden, and I will refresh you. 
when he's talking to the initiated, the disciples, it's pick up your cross and follow me. He doesn't say that to the big crowds. He says that to the smaller group. So those who are present at the mass, those who are participating in the worship are part of that, are our disciples. And so we need both poles. You know, we need to be suckered. We need to understand the grace we've been given in Christ but also that grace doesn't leave us as it found us. You know, there's a transformation element. There's an ethical element. And so the communion kind of links these two parts together. And what really links them together um, is love, right? We empty ourselves, Thornton says, to receive all. We give all to be full with God. Communion is, in, is uh, as indescribable as love itself. And so therefore our whole lives have to revolve around communion. And Thornton says that what that means is that not only do you make it a point to be there when it's being offered, Sundays, red letter days, but also that, that how we structure our spiritual lives, actually I don't like that term, spiritual lives, how we structure our lives when it comes to spiritual things should be with the mass in view. So the mass, so the, the mass is the reason we pray the daily office Monday through Saturday. And you can do it Sundays too. Nobody's stopping you. Um, it's why we go to confession. It's why we you know, do all the other activities that we do during the week is really to prepare us for communion. So, of course, we have this other aspect of, of worship. So there's the Mass. That's the center of everything. Everything flows out of the Mass, right? Without the Mass, there is no prayer. Without the Mass, there is no prayer. Why is that true? Because, the, because there is a fundamental difference between us and God, right? God is our creator. We're creatures. And when there's an inequality, communication becomes very difficult. Because communication assumes a kind of equality. You know? um, I think it was uh, the philosopher Wittgenstein who said that if, if a lion could speak, we would have no idea what it was saying anyways. Because it's a lion. We're not the same. Um, And so um, that is amplified when we talk about being creatures and when we talk about a creator. Talk about transcendence, you know. I mean, the creator is so transcendent from us that naturally there is no relationship that's really possible. So the only way that we can speak to God is through Christ, who is God, who takes on human nature, taking us up into the divine life. So Herbert McCabe, who's a great theologian, said um, that when we pray, God doesn't see a creature standing before their creator. He sees sons standing before the father, his, their father. And that's because we're in Christ. What does Jesus say? If you've seen me, you've seen the father. That's the only way that the communication can work. Because whatever the father is, there is a relationship with the son. There's an equality with the son. Now we're brought up into the son through adoption, and we can then speak to the father. So that, that mystery then is what unfolds for us at the Mass. Christ in us, us in Christ. Out of that principle then is the daily office, which is our, our daily prayers. Richard Mew Benson uh, says that the daily office or is the prayer of Jesus to his Father through his body. And so the minimum uh, for the daily office is, is morning and evening prayer daily throughout the year. If you, um, if you were in a church that used the 79 prayer book or the 2019 prayer book before you came here, you know that they have more offices than just morning and evening prayer. There's noon prayer and there's Compline. Those are great offices. Um, they're not required, especially not of us because we don't have them in our prayer book. There are supplemental texts you can get, St. Augustine's prayer book or the Anglican office book or a few others that have some sort of noon and Compline prayer in them. And it's, those are good things to do, but they're not really required. What's, what's required, if you want to be a regular, is morning and evening prayer. Um, and it's really important to not overcomplicate these things, to do them simply, to do them with obedience to the rubrics, do what the rubrics say. Uh, that's really important. You can, perhaps as you become more proficient, add certain things if you would like. Um, you know, the Angelus at Neshota House, uh, where I go to school, you know, they, they have morning prayer and communion and then they have evening prayer. Before morning and evening prayer, they always ring the Angelus bells. You don't have to pray it if you don't want to, but you can. 
could do that when you're doing the daily office if you want to by yourself. Um, but it's important not to add, do too much by way of addition to the to the office. Try to do them simply, and you know maybe don't change the canticles too much. Maybe pick one, pick use one canticle throughout a whole season, and then maybe in Advent you know change it around you know or something like that. Um, but that way there's stability there. Thornton says there are three stages in reciting the office. The first degree, he says, is the elementary stage. It's when we're learning how to say the office. It's when our attention has to, is primarily directed at saying and or thinking the words and sentences as they're written on the page. So, I mean, when you first start anything, you have to really pay attention. We were talking about theater, Ken and I, earlier. You know, when you first get the script, you stand up there, and you maybe work on the blocking a little bit, but you've got the script right there. I mean, you don't have your lines memorized. Over time, what happens? As you internalize the script, you don't need the book as much anymore. And you can focus less on what the words are and more on what it is they're supposed to mean. So, so when we move from the first degree to the second degree of the office, we become well-practiced in the words. And so we can raise ourselves to God in affection there's a, a more emotional element to the office once we're familiar with the words. We pay more attention to God's presence. And really, at that point, the words become kind of less important. It becomes a little more emotive, you know. Um, the words are sort of just a vehicle to bring us there. So that's the second degree. The third degree, the highest state of, of, of proficiency when it comes to the office, is when we can synthesize those two things. When we're saying the words and we can focus on what the words are, but also that, that, that we're feeling, that we have, we have some sort of emotional experience, that, that, there is, um, uh, that there is affection. It's not just a rote exercise. Something is really happening in our hearts, but not at the expense of what's going on in our heads. In other words, the person is becoming integrated, right? We're not brains on sticks, and we're not just a swirl of emotions. We're both. And so the office, when it's done really well, brings those two things together. Thornton says that the office needs much practice in recollection and attention, some training in the technique of objective giving in worship, and a grasp of the principle of obedience. So it becomes an important training tool for us. So there's the mass, there's daily office, and then there's private prayer. And when, when we talk about the rule and we say the word private prayer, I mean, that probably has a whole host of connotations for different people. You know, um, when I hear private prayer, uh, having been raised evangelical, initially I just assume sort of that extemporaneous kind of thing that you were talking about earlier, Kathy, which it can, it can include, but that's not the only thing that's meant by private prayer. And, of course, we should clarify at the very beginning, there is no such thing as private prayer in the pure sense, right? Like we said earlier, prayer is always done with angels, archangels, and all the company of heaven. It's never just you and God. Um, but... What we mean when we talk about private prayer in the context of the rule is, the, is, is prayer that is specifically directed towards the sanctification of the individual soul by the indwelling spirit to the glory of God. It must always add to the prayer of the mystical body, understanding that we're part of the larger church. Again, it's that idea that every, you know, the body is as healthy as its parts. And so what a, what a foot requires might be different than what the hand requires, but the prayer is still for the whole, the life of the whole, not just the individual foot. Can you repeat uh, what you said? Prayer is specifically... Uh, private prayer concerns the sanctification of the individual soul by the indwelling spirit to the glory of God. And it adds... To the prayer of the mystical body, meaning the individual is always anchored in the corporate. Or as Thornton says, facts, uh, uh, yeah, facts matter more than feeling in prayer. It should be said that private prayer, while it can include extemporaneous elements to it, should not necessarily just be things that we invent on our own. It's good to draw from the tradition of the church when we're deciding what kinds of prayer, private prayers to do. And again, that will vary based on the person. 
But like I said, there are millions of devotions out there, millions. You know, we couldn't do all of them. We have to pick ones that work for us based on a variety of factors. And the nice thing about this whole process is what we call spiritual direction, which I'll talk about in our next session. But a spiritual director, in effect, can, can sort of help you tailor a, um, a rule based on your own gifts and needs. Under the heading of private prayer are three sections for Thornton um, subcategories. The first subcategory is mental prayer. Mental prayer. Mental prayer is any spiritual exercise, any spiritual exercise leading to greater knowledge of God. It can also be the prayer. It can be a prayer with the mind rather than just words. There are lots of different ways to achieve this. It can begin with an intellectual idea, the impassibility of God. God doesn't experience feelings or emotions like humans do, right? Or really at all, because that would constitute a change in God. What does that mean? That means God never changes. It means he doesn't need anything outside of himself. You know, um, As we begin to think through what is a kind of dense theological idea, it should bring us to a point of worship. That, again, that's not necessarily for everyone, but that there is something to that. You know, um, Some of the great theological works, um, like St. Anselm, who's one of my favorites, favorite theologians in the history of the church, did his theologizing as a form of prayer. It wasn't just an academic lecture. It was, it was about experiencing the mystery of God and trying to put words to that experience in some way. So it can start with an intellectual idea. It can start with a simple mental image of Christ. It can start with, with, with seeing Christ in the Eucharist. Right? Sometimes I like to get here very early on Sunday mornings and sit in the chapel with the Eucharistic host in a, in a monstrance and think about, that is Christ. And that's a good way to center the rest of the day. Um, it can be seeing Christ in other people. You know, knowing that, knowing that, you know, the beggar on the street is not just someone for whom I should feel bad, but that's Christ. That's what he says. And, you know, what you did for them, you did for me. It could happen with a sense of the presence of the Holy Ghost with us in a, in a given moment. That can constitute mental prayer. Um, the Eastern Orthodox, in order to do um, mental prayer, use icons like those over there. You know, and they will venerate the icons and they'll, um, they'll pray in front of the icons and, and use those as what they call windows into heaven. It's a mental thing for them. You know? it's, a, it's an image. The Western Christian church often has used statues for this. Like if you go to some churches, like uh, the Cathedral of the Diocese of the Holy Cross in, in South Carolina, they have like a statue of Mary that they'll leave flowers for on May Day, you know. Um, that's that's an, an effective sort of mental exercise. Um, prayers before a crucifix can also do this. In fact, I had a really interesting, <laughs> this story is funny. We had, a, we had a vestry meeting a month, two months ago, and Deacon David and I decided to go to um, Ramshead afterwards just to unwind a little bit, you know. It was karaoke night. We had no idea it was karaoke night. So we walk in, collars, you know, everything, and they're singing karaoke. And, uh, but as we were walking in, this one couple was outside smoking, and the husband stopped us and thanked us for wearing our collars. Like you would think a police officer or a vet or something, you know. And, uh, wow, that's very nice. Very blue-collar guy, you know, unchurched. Um, and we got talking to them for a long time, and we were doing a Theology in the Garden night a couple days later, and we said, hey, you should come to Theology in the Garden night with us. Um, we just hang out, you know, we talk and everything. So they, this couple ended up showing up and he needed to talk to me. And so we, he and I kind of went off by ourselves and we talked for a while and, uh, you know, about some really interesting and, and kind of heavy things. And at, at a certain point I said, you know what, words are not going to be able to do much at this point. So I took him in the chapel where we have on the side wall, right by the door from the office into the chapel, there's the crucifix. And we sat in front of the crucifix for about 40 minutes talking about the crucifix. You know. That is a beautiful, beautiful way of doing prayer. It's not really you know, uh, syllogisms or propositions. It's, look, this is God. This is God. Um, and, and so that, that can be a really helpful um, exercise. This can also include meditation on Our Lady and the Saints. Um, so, for example, 
you know, what does Mary say at the Annunciation when Gabriel says, you know, you're pregnant? And she, at first she doesn't quite understand, but what does she, what does she end with? Yeah, let it be done to me according to your will. Is there a better prayer for a Christian than that prayer? I mean, that's the prayer our Lord gives on the cross or in the garden. Not my will, but thy will be done. That's the Christian prayer. Um, and so the saints, you know, throughout the whole calendar of saints, and there, it's, a, it's, a, it's an intricate calendar. Pick up an auto calendar downstairs on Annie's desk on your way out today. There is a ton of saints beyond the red letter days. And even if you don't come to mass on those days or we don't have a mass on those days, it's still worth thinking about why do we remember these saints? What do they do? Because there's an imagination element to this, right? If I know the story of how, you know, how this saint stood up to this Roman emperor and he got killed because of it. Well, then maybe that gives me some inspiration and thought as to what I can do when I'm confronted by something that's, you know, directly opposed to the gospel in our day and how I can resist that and, and give a good witness to the truth. So the saints are these, are these people who have heeded the call to pick up, pick up our cross and follow him throughout history in various contexts and by studying their lives. You know, we're not taking away from the work of Christ, quite the opposite. We're seeing what that work looks like in a variety of contexts, which then helps us understand what does it look like in my context. So mental prayer has this kind of almost imaginative element. And this is why I'm really excited about that Junius Johnson lecture uh, that's coming up on November 11th, talking about imagination at the heart of discipleship. You know, I mean, there are manuals that we can use for certain things. Like when you go to confession, there are manuals that you can, that a priest can use to sort of help you know, counsel you and understand kind of where the sin that you're confessing falls on the spectrum of, you know, mortal sin and venial sin and that kind of thing, which is helpful. At the same time, you know, not everything in the Christian life can be reduced to a manual. There is an aspect of wisdom, and that wisdom requires us to have a sanctified imagination in order to apply it. So mental prayer really helps us in this way. The second kind of private prayer, so the first kind is mental prayer. The second kind is colloquy which is a way of saying conversation, prayer that is conversation with God. What was that word? Colloquy, C-O-L-L-O-Q-U-Y. I think it was a, a, a British. Yeah, that's pro- I'm probably saying it wrong. Well, that's where we get the word colloquial, right? Because colloquial language is what you use in everyday conversation, right? So, so this kind of prayer is prayer that is a conversation with God. So again, we're getting a little more into the extemporaneous. I mean, mental prayer is extemporaneous, but or can be extemporaneous, but but so can so can colloquy prayer. There are different kinds of colloquy prayer. So there's petitionary prayer, which is when we pray for our own needs. You know, um, we ask God to teach us something or or show us something. Um, we can think of Saint Augustine's great prayer: "Give me chastity, but not yet." Um, So there's petitionary prayer. There's also self-examination and confession, um, which should be done in conversation with God. A good self-examination begins and ends with prayer, where we ask for the Holy Spirit to enlighten us, to show us our, where we fell short, to show us what we need to change. And then we do self-reflection. And you can do that in different ways. Some people like to use the Ten Commandments, especially Jesus' elevation of the Ten Commandments. You know, you've heard it said, don't murder. I say, don't even think something angry about someone. Well, have I kept that commandment? Probably not. Um, that's one way to do it. The other way to do it is the seven deadly sins can be a really helpful tool. St. Augustine's prayer book has a really nice uh, self-examination template for you, and it has prayers for the beginning and ending. But it's really important that whatever method we choose in self-examination, that we do it and that we do it regularly. Because... Um, because self-examination actually, far from being anxiety-inducing or condemnatory, should actually liberate us. It should free us. You know, we're free to admit, yes, I have fallen short there. We don't have to hide it. That's exhausting, isn't it? When you, when you know you've done something wrong and you have to hide it. No, that's not what confession, confession does the opposite. It takes that burden away from us. And self-examination helps us listen to God. You know, it, it helps us be attuned. At the end of the day, I mean, ideally, it, this is a great thing to do with Compline if, if you have the time for it. You know, you go through the whole day. You think about your interactions with others. You know, did I, did I engage with my wife and children in a way that, that showed God's love? 
no, I didn't. Man, I really messed that one up, you know, and I, I might make a record of that in my journal to bring to confession next time. Um, so it helps us listen to God, listen to the Holy Spirit, as he might bring things up in our, in our mind, you know, as we're, as we're doing this kind of meditative work. And, you know, the nice thing about self-examination is it helps us to be more intentional about how we order our lives because the standards that we use when we're using self-examination can help us get to the end goal, right? So if I say, you know, I want to do a self-examination and one of my goals is that I want to give up, you know, this habit um, by, by kind of thinking about, okay, did I, you know, let's say smoking. I mean, smoking is not really a sin, but let's just say that's something you want to give up. You know, did I smoke today? Yes, I smoked twice. What, when? Um, when I was really stressed and I needed a break, you know, I, I, I went outside and smoked a cigarette. Okay. Um, so now I know, you know, when I get in that situation, my tendency is to do that act. And so by doing the self-examination, it's not haphazard. I don't say, oh, man, I really wish I could give up smoking. And then I don't think about it, you know, which is what often people will do. Oh, I know I should give that up, but I don't want to. You know? <laughs> give me chastity, but not yet. Um, and so, so it really helps us be intentional about ordering our lives, right? And then, of course, we need – once we have that data, once we've done self-examination, we need to do something with it. And that something that we do is confession, um, is confession. Uh, there's a great sermon by Soren Kierkegaard who was a Danish philosopher about confession. And he says, look, you know, some people don't come because they think that confession is, is, is this kind of strict – thing where, you know, a nun slaps your hand with a ruler or something. Um, I mean, a nun couldn't hear your confession, but the priest won't slap your hand with a ruler. Um, but that's not what it is. He says, you know, when you come in the confessional, who's accusing you? Not God, not the priest. You accuse you. But, but you're doing it as a way of purging. You're saying, I know this is bad. I know this was not healthy. I know this was bad. And I want to, I want to make amends for that. I want to, I want to be, I want to repent. And so we make our act of contrition and, and we heed the counsel of the priest in that moment. And then we receive the absolution. So, so we have petitionary prayer. We have self-examination and confession. We also have intercessory prayer, like what Donna was mentioning, where, where you know, intercessory prayer is not so much about our needs. It's about the needs of others. And that's important because, we're, like we said earlier, we're bearing each other's burdens. And that's what the church does. That's what the church does. And it's really interesting how um, I was watching a comedian just the other day who was saying something about, you know, whenever something bad happens to him and, and somebody says, uh, you know, oh, I'll pray for you. And he goes, oh, so you're going to sit in your apartment and do nothing about it? And I mean, he meant it as a joke, you know, and he's, but, it, but there's some, I think he's reflecting a common cultural attitude. You know, people will, that's actually a political slogan, right? Like after a mass shooting, well, thoughts and prayers aren't enough. Well, you know, there's a sense in which prayer is the most profound thing we can do. Um, now, we shouldn't say, I'll pray for you and not pray for someone. That's bad. And I think sometimes that's what happens when people say, oh, I'll pray for you. You know, they don't really mean it. But the actual work of intercessory prayer is hard work, and, but it's necessary work. It's necessary work, and it does do things, right? Because you're bearing, you're bearing burdens. That doesn't mean it will necessarily end the way we want it to end, the thing, you know, I mean, you might pray for, um, for a specific goal and that goal never be realized. Um, but that's, that's not necessarily, um, a bad answer to your prayer. It means God knows more than you do. So there's intercessory prayer. There's also Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is a great way to begin any self-examination exercise. It's a good thing to do every so often anyways. And if you, if you look at the prayer books, uh, prayer of thanksgiving at the daily office, there is a section where it's basically you can take the time to insert all the things you're thankful for. So it's good to do that at least once a day, but, but perhaps more. All the great gifts God gives you, you know. And that really helps contextualize things because we can get so, woe is me, you know, I'm having a tough time at work. I'm having a tough time at home. I'm, you know, uh, inflation, you know, that kind of stuff. And it's like, well, you know, Thanksgiving, I'm alive. That's pretty good. You know? um, I have a job. That's pretty good. You know, I have a family. That's pretty good. So uh, Thanksgiving contextualizes us, uh, and it also helps us remember we're creatures and God is our creator. And so there is this aspect of open-handedness. What he gives us, we receive from him knowing that he's given it to us as a gift. 
So Thanksgiving is very important. And then finally, the, the sort of culmination of all of, of uh, colloquy is adoration. Adoration. And that is, as according to Fortin, the highest form of all prayer. It's the creature's response to God alone, irrespective of his gifts. Holy, objective worship. Perfect self-giving to God. Worshiping God for who he is. Not what he's done. Not because we feel good that day because, you know, we found a $100 bill on the sidewalk or something like that. Worshiping God in spite of any circumstance, good or bad, just because he's God. That's the real goal. When we reach that, that's, that's sort of beautiful contemplation. So we've talked about mental prayer as the first category. We talked about colloquy as the second category and all the sort of sub uh, types of prayer that fall under that, you know, um, uh, petition, self-examination and confession, intercession, thanksgiving, adoration. The third kind of private prayer is called recollection. Recollection, or Brother Lawrence language, practicing the presence of God. Recollection, that word, recollect. You know, um, the idea for a lot of Christians throughout history was that Adam and Eve were united beings. Their, their bodies and their souls worked together in a kind of perfect harmony. And their souls were directed at one love, and that one love was a love for God. The problem is that the fall left us really fractured, and that our, our love became divided among the many different things that we now are attracted to. And so the goal then of the Christian life is to unify the person back into one love for God. And we know we'll experience that, um, you know, in glory at the, at the beatific vision, but, um, but now it's, it can be kind of hard for us. Thornton uses the, uses the, um, the phrase that, that the goal is to become a harmony pointed God words, a harmony pointed God words. He says our souls, that is ourselves, are like a jumbled heap of pins pointing in all directions and getting in one another's way. But the slow approach of a magnet sorts the jumble out in a remarkable way. Confusion becomes a pattern. Each pen points in the same direction and all is achieved by the focus of magnetic power. The state of perfect recollection is that most characteristic expression of the Holy Ghost, the creation of order out of chaos. But we can still help. We have our own part to play. In other words, that's the mission. The mission, the goal is for us to be reformed, recollected, reunified. So Thornton isolates two ways to do this, or two sort of larger categories of recollection. There's habitual recollection and actual recollection. So habitual recollection is, is kind of, it's really, he, it would be a constant state of the soul. You are habitually acknowledging God's presence. It's permanent God-centeredness without interruption. So it's knowing that God is present right now. It's getting in the car and knowing he's present there. It's getting in traffic and knowing he's still present there. It's getting cut off and knowing God is still, in fact, present there. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's everything. It's, it's cleaning the bathroom and knowing God is present there. It's, it's cooking dinner and knowing God is present there. That's habitual recollection, just that, that awareness of God's presence. And, and that's really hard, I think, for us because we live in such a distracted age where you're constantly being bombarded, you know, images and texts and internet and TV. And not that it's impossible. It's just, I think it's, it was easier to do this 50 years ago or 100 years ago or 200 years ago when you don't, aren't being bombarded constantly. You could just go outside and enjoy the birds chirping and think, man, God is, it's very easy to think about God in that situation. Um, whereas, you know, when you're on 95 at rush hour, it's not. <laughs> Um, if ever there was a godless place. Um, anyways, so, um, so there's habitual recollection. That is something we do have to practice. You know, I mean, that's why Brother Lawrence says practicing the presence of God. We're not going to do that all the time. We're not going to be perfect at it. But it's no, when we catch ourselves not remembering God, it's just saying, oh, man, yeah, I'm not remembering, and, and, and then beginning to remember again. But there is also actual recollection. So there's habitual recollection and actual recollection. Actual recollection are various acts that we make throughout the day on purpose, on purpose. 
Often very simple responses to the love of God or remembrance of his presence on purpose. Um, It can also be something simple like the Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It could be the Lord's prayer. It could be a Hail Mary. Um, It could just simply be acknowledging that God is here right now. Um, He says the goal would be, I mean, in a perfect world that, you know, especially if you're, if you work or are busy during the day, that the goal would be maybe to make just five to six simple acts of recollection throughout the day. Just, I mean, you know, 30 second pause, you know, of of some sort. Um, And that'll look different for different people, but, but something like that. Um, One thing that might be helpful. So um, there are these little prayer bead decades, you know, so there, a rosary has five decades um, you can buy a little one that has just one decade, 10 beads. And like, I'll, I, like during Lent, I'll try and keep that in my car. And instead of just turning on a podcast while I'm driving, you know, go up doing the Jesus prayer or something like that. You know, anything you can do um, in that way. That, and again, it should be done intentionally. You know, what devotion kind of speaks to you? What devotion do you need to do? Um, but, but planning them in such a way that, that it's easy. Um, it's easy to remember. You know, if you have a, a computer... Um, at your work or something, maybe stick an index card on it with, with whatever prayer it is that you want to pray um, throughout the day. So um, that can be a form of actual recollection. Another form of recollection is fasting. Fasting can be a, um, a form of recollection because what is our Lenten fast based on? Jesus' is fast in the wilderness, right? Which is why Lent begins with that reading. Jesus is out in the wilderness for 40 days fasting. Um, again, that's another discipline that needs to be tailored. So, you know, the traditional view is that you can eat fish on fasting days, but not meat. We live in Maryland where we have lots of good fish and crabs and lobster and everything. Maybe, you know, fasting is not sitting down and eating a big crab feast. <laughs> Um, so, you know, we can, we can adapt what that means and looks like for us. Um, but, but the fact that we're doing it is calling to mind our Lord's deprivation, um, in the wilderness and, and, and a renunciation of ourselves as we prepare for the feast of Easter. Um, abstinence on Fridays when we abstain from eating meat on Fridays, which, you know, some people like to try and do that all year round. Some people do that only during Lent. Um, whichever one, the point is we don't, Friday's just not a random day that we do that on. It's to remember the cross. That's the day Jesus died. So we abstain from meat on that day. There is a, um, there is a Trinitarian rhythm to this. Um, and, and depending on where we are, different kinds of recollection may be more appropriate. So Thornton says there are two kinds of problems that we encounter. There are the problems that we absolutely can't control. Inflation. Uh, you know, your 401k. I guess you can control your 401k. But, you know, um, some things you are just out of your hands, right? Um, there are also kinds of problems where it takes initiative to solve them. Your initiative to solve your problem, you know? When we're in a situation where we just feel overwhelmed and there's no way for us to solve the problem, he says a really good habit of recollection is focusing on the fatherhood of God because that's that transcendent element of prayer. You know, it's saying God, is, God has all of the circumstances in his hands. So I don't need to worry about it because I can, I can trust in him. When it's a problem that's based on our initiative to be solved, well, then it's helpful for us to focus on the Holy Spirit, his indwelling, his guidance, his personal inspiration, and how we might then participate with him moving forward. So we are asking for his strength, wisdom, etc., to do what he's doing, to do what he needs us to do. So again, that, there's this idea of flexibility in the rule, right? You know, it's not a one-size-fits-all thing. What you're facing is not what, what someone else is facing, and so what you do is not going to be what they do necessarily, though they are bound by a common theme, which is this idea of recollecting. Another facet of recollection is recollection in the church, in the church, remembering that we are members of the church, 
that God is with us in and through our membership in the church. So there is a sense in which as the body of Christ, I mean, yes, Christ dwells in us, you know, we are in Christ. Um, That's something we play out during the mass. There's also a sense in which Christ is with his church, you know, um, and he will provide for his church. Uh, And so, uh, you know, this is kind of that husband-wife imagery, I think, um, the nuptial imagery that's so prevalent. Um, And so this can occur in different ways. You know, in the Eucharist, Christ speaks to us through the celebrant. Um, At baptisms and at the Easter vigil, we renew our baptismal covenant. Um, It occurs in marriage, right, where the husband and wife are living icons of the relationship between Christ and his church. And it happens in the church calendar. Thornton has a lot to say about the beauty of the church calendar. Totally transfigures our view of time, you know. Um, The secular view of time is that today is, you know, Saturday, October 29th. um, But the church says, no, today is not just Saturday, October 29th. Today is the Saturday after the 19th Sunday after Trinity. That sounds kind of weird, but... But we're thinking about time differently, aren't we? Yesterday was not October 28th on a Friday. It was the Feast of St. Simon and St. Jude. And, and that, again, expresses our unity as the church and our place in it. Because, because being part of the church is not just being a member of St. Paul's, right? It's not even just being a member of the global church as it currently exists right now. It's being a member of all the faithful people who have ever lived, who have ever followed God, Right? And we're unified together. We call them, the Christians who have gone before us, the church triumphant. And we call those of us who are here on earth the church militant. But we're still the church together. And so when we remember St. Simon and St. Jude, it's not some obscure you know, thing that we do just to do it. It's this very real sense of, you know, this is a really important day. This is a really important day because these are Christians who have set an example for us. These are Christians for whom God, through whom God has worked. Um, and, and so what we do with them is just as important as, as what we do with each other. And there's this idea of bearing burdens too, I think. This plays out in the All Saints and All Souls Day. You know, um, On All Souls, we ask the saints for their prayers, the litany of the saints. And on All Souls, we pray for the departed. Because, because again, we're unified by Christ, all of us. So there are all sorts of different uh, avenues to private prayer, um, but these are three main headings. You know, there's this idea of mental prayer, colloquy, and uh, acts of recollection. Um, again, those things will look different depending on who you are and where you are in your journey, but, um, but it's very important that we, that we are at least, I think, aware of these three different, um, three different forms of private prayer and that we become then intentional about which ones, um, which practices we will cultivate in our own lives. So um, mass, daily office, private prayer, those are our three, the threefold cord that is not easily broken. If we, if we cling to those things, then we will, by the grace of the Holy Ghost, see progress in our journey. What we're going to talk about in our next session is the idea of spiritual direction um, and how that plays out in the context of private prayer in particular. Um, but before we uh, take another break, are there any questions or comments that we can talk about? Yes, Donna. A problem that I continually have in my private prayer is that I catch myself telling God, I'm going to pray for you, but I Yeah. So the yeah, the, so the question is, you know, you, you get in these modes where you're praying and you you start telling God what to do. Um, it's what you're asking for, but you're tell, you're telling him. Right, you're asking but you're really telling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I understand that. It's like when a teacher asks you, you know, "Hey, can you stop doing that?" It's like they're not really asking you, they're telling you, you know. Um, yeah, so I think if that's our tendency, and I think a lot of, for a lot of people, that is their tendency. I mean, I think that's kind of the human problem is we want to control God. Um, perhaps at that point, um, doing some practices that emphasize the transcendence of God, like we said earlier, you know, that might be a, one thing because, you know, we're, we're saying, you know, God is the creator and we're the creature. So we're restoring that relationship where, you know, actually whatever he wants to do is probably better for us than what we want him to do. 
Um, and then I think ending our prayers or repeatedly saying in our prayers, thy will, not my will be done constantly is, is a really important thing. I, I, I think that's a, a, such a beautiful prayer. Be it done unto me according to thy will. Be it done unto so-and-so according to thy will. Because we know whatever God's will is in that situation is better for them than whatever we would imagine for them. Mm-hmm. It's, it's telling him. Yeah. Right. So. It's telling him what you want, but. <laughs> yeah. I can't it. I think when we do make those kinds of requests, we, the idea is that open handedness. So, for example, I you know might wake up on a certain day and I've got a to do list. And that to do list might be pretty long. I think, God, help me get through all this stuff on my to do list. And then I get a call from some person, maybe a parishioner, maybe even just someone from the community who needs something. I've got this long to-do list, but now I've been interrupted. The, te- the headmaster at the school where I taught said, used to tell us there are no interruptions, only divine appointments. So yeah, so uh, asking for that posture as a whole, you know, um, it's not wrong to ask for specific things. God, help me to, help me to get the um, talks done for the retreat on Saturday. That's a good prayer to pray. At the same time, I know there's a kind of open-handedness to that um, where I'm, I'm recognizing God as the creator and I'm the creature. So whatever we can do to um, emphasize that, to, to train ourselves, to remember that, I think is really important. Yeah. Well, right, it should be, right, it should be. It should be unless you're a type A Enneagram 3 INTJ like I am, in which case it can be cause for a panic attack. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Not really. But, but it, is, it, is, it is, you know, um, for some people, they see their to-do list and a call would be a welcome reprieve from that. For me, it's, oh, here's another, th- you know, here's something kind of blocking me from the to-do list. But you're right. It is a gift. It is a gift. Especially if the to-do list is generated by my wife. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, I married someone who doesn't know how to make a to-do list, which is good on that level, but, um, but yeah. I don't know about, well, yeah, okay. Anything else? All right, so next um, session we will talk about uh, spiritual direction and what that means, what that looks like, why it's important. Um, let's just do maybe five minutes now. Um, so 1115, we'll be back here and we'll hopefully, we'll try and end right around noon so that we can do, um, we can do Holy Communion.